This is this is uh, pretty exciting stuff. I'm actually uh, think it'll be fun. I think we'll enjoy this. This is the conclusion of Acts. I think we'll make it all the way through it because although it's eight chapters, it's a story. So there's not a lot of breakdown as we go. Just kind of give you uh, background to the story, and we'll follow our little maps around as we go. But it's pretty exciting. This is kind of the culmination. This would make a fantastic movie, um, and it's set up for a sequel because there's no resolution. So this would be great. Um, so actually, I'm pretty excited about it. Let's pray, and, uh, and we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, just enabling us to be here this evening and um, for um, just making it possible, Lord, for us to be here. I pray that we would be inspired. I pray that we would be um, encouraged. I pray that we would be challenged. All the things, Lord, as I read through uh, this, this passage in Acts, these chapters, Lord, all the things that kind of it was to me, I just pray that you would communicate that to, to all of us uh, tonight, that it would lift our spirits and our, our faith and our hearts and our hope and, and just remind us what an amazing God you are, that nothing is out of your control and that you really are directing the paths and, and uh, that we could learn from Paul's attitude, Lord. And um, I just pray you'd give us a, a glimpse of reality as we go through this, that we wouldn't over, um, over-spiritualize Paul, Lord, where we don't give him room to, uh, to be discouraged, Lord, so that he has no relevance to us. And also, Lord, that we would, but at the same time, recognize where he does give us a great challenge and a great role model. And, um, and just that you would just really give us a glimpse of reality that we'd see uh, this story as it is um, and that you would speak to us through that. So I pray for your Holy Spirit's work uh, in all this and pray that you just lead our time tonight. These things are pray in your son's name. Amen. So this is the exciting conclusion slash cliffhanger. So yes, I will warn you that the end of the book of Acts is like a cliffhanger. It's not like a cliffhanger. It is a cliffhanger. It doesn't tell us what happens. Um, and, but I do think it's also probably the reason Luke is writing the letter is revealed here. Now, for those of you who've been around a while, do you guys remember what we postulated might be the reason Luke is writing the book of Acts? Does anybody recall? Right. We, pause, we, we suggested, and I think it's pretty strong that as we've gone through it, just looking at what he, what he emphasizes and what he doesn't, and even in these last eight chapters, um, we, we put forth the possibility that Luke, as a physician, as a kind of a respected Gentile, um, would be a friend of the court or have the potential to be a friend of the court. And as Paul is uh, on trial, this whole thing may be written as a defense of Paul to show, in fact, that Paul was not stirring up trouble that he wasn't causing riots and he wasn't trying to overturn the Roman government. And um, that makes a lot of sense. It explains a lot of things that Luke emphasizes as he goes through. Um, and it explains why he sometimes slips into we because it makes it a eyewitness testimony at those moments as well. Um, it also explains a lot about the last eight chapters, what he includes and what he doesn't. And um, it also explains why it ends on a cliffhanger. Because if he is in fact writing it as a defense, then of course at the time he's writing it, he doesn't know if Paul uh, is actually going to be convicted or not. And so when he concludes the book of Acts, we don't know either. Um, fortunately, history gives us some indication. And, um, but I'm not going to tell you tonight. We'll just have to keep going and find out. Um, so this, that's kind of just a, a little, uh, little hint of where we're going and where we are. So here we are. We're going to, as we start in chapter 20, we're looking at the conclusion of Paul's third missionary journey and his involuntary journey. Um, in other words, he goes on another journey that he wouldn't do uh, if it were entirely up to him. And the only slide, but the really important ones that we're going to have throughout uh, the whole night tonight is a couple maps, just to kind of show you where he's going and how he's progressing. Um, 
And so just to remind you before we jump into verse 7 of chapter 20, just to kind of remind you where we've been, uh, Paul started from Antioch. So it's, I don't know if you can see the little line that we just drew, but on the right side of the screen, right above where it says Syria, it says Antioch. That was the church that sent him on his third missionary journey. That's where he was when they sent him off. He traveled up through Tarsus. And in fact, he traveled through the, the whole region of Asia and Galatia there. And does anybody remember what his main goal as he was traveling was? He actually had two goals. Does anybody remember either of them? I know it's been a while. That's why we're reviewing. What's that? He was. He'd actually been there in his second journey. So he's wanting to revisit a lot of the churches that he would planted and strengthen them and find out where they were. There's another reason, though, that he's traveling to churches he's already visited. Does anybody recall? Exactly right. He's trying to collect money for the needy in Jerusalem. There's a lot of need in Jerusalem and a lot of poor, and so that's part of his mission, is as he goes to each of these churches, he's also collecting money um, as he goes. When he gets to Ephesus, does anybody remember what happens there? Anybody remember anything that happens there? You could take a guess at one thing that happens there. What is, yes, that's a good guess. You could guess. There's two things that usually happen when Paul goes into a city. What are those two things? He, he plants, I was going to say he plants a church and there's a riot. And so the, both of those do happen in Ephesus. In fact, he spends two years in Ephesus. It's really important to remember in these journeys, they're compressed like this. We don't remember how much time goes by. Um, but he spends two years in Ephesus. So he has a, a lot of bond and a lot of connection to this church. He, he, he plants this church, he builds this church, and then he spends two years really pastoring this church. And, but yes, at the end of those two years, there is a very big riot. There's a, a massive riot. Uh, they really don't like him. Does anybody remember who doesn't like him and why? That's a good guess. It usually is. But in this case, it's not actually the Jews who incite the riot to begin with. It's actually the idol makers. This is where the idol makers are very unhappy with him because he's ruining their business. <laughs> yeah, he's, all these people aren't going to the idols anymore. Um, now, once they start the riot, the Jews are happy to join in, um, those who didn't like him. But it's really the idol makers that caused the riot. It's a big deal, and he, he, does run, he, he runs, which is not at all to say he shouldn't. I mean, I don't think there's any. Paul, we'll notice about Paul, particularly as we go through this passage, he doesn't have this desire to be a martyr. And I think that's good for us to realize He's not afraid of it, but it's not his goal, <laughs> you know. So when they're coming to kill him, he thinks, I'm going to get out of here, you know. That's okay. I'm going to leave now. But it's interesting. It does mention, and it shows us his bond, that even though he's, he's running for his life, he takes time to go say goodbye to the Ephesian church. He actually takes time to, it says he literally uh, embraces them. He hugs them. I don't think he probably hugged the whole church, but maybe he tried. And, you know, I think that kind of shows you, again, he's running for his life, but he can't leave without saying I'm going. I have to go. Um, they knew he had to go. They understood it. So he runs, and he flees to Macedonia, um, takes a boat across the, the little, uh, whatever that is there, Aegean Sea, and goes to Macedonia, which is today modern Greece. But he goes over to Macedonia. He goes to Philippi, um, and he leaves Luke there. We don't know why for sure, but he does. Maybe because there's things that need to be done. But again, as you read through Acts, Luke starts, stops using the we at that point. I think he actually says he left some of us behind. And then he leaves Luke in Philippi. And he goes throughout Macedonia. He just travels to the churches he's been to before, the Thessalonica, Berea, 
works his way eventually down to Athens, um, ends up in, in Greece proper. And along the way, he's encouraging the existing churches that are there. He's propping them up. He's helping them because they're in persecution. When he gets to Athens, he tries to preach the gospel. He's very wise about the way he does it. But at the end, it says that really the people in Athens are mostly interested in talking about things and not really accomplishing anything, which is a pretty nice definition of Greek philosophy. Um, and I like Greek philosophy. So <laughs> I still think that's a pretty good definition. Um, and um, let's see. He eventually heads up to, all the way up to, and we only, we'll come back. We only know this, we'll come back. There we go. We only know this from Romans 15, 19. He heads up as far as, Il, 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 I don't know how to pronounce it, Illyricum. Um, and he heads up there. And we don't know what happens there, but he just mentions in, in Romans 15 that he went that far. So he works his way up there, travels back down. He spends uh, about three months in Corinth when he was in Corinth before he left. He spends about three months there, kind of working with the church there, goes up to Illyricum, and then he's getting ready to sail back to Syria. So Syria is where he started. So start watching because I want you to realize how long it takes him to get back because this is the moment he's trying. He's going to get on a ship, and he's going to head back to Syria. That's his plan, but he can't do it. Can you guess why? Not yet. Before he can even get on a ship, he discovers that, surprise, surprise, uh, there's some people who want to kill him. And so we don't know the details and why he didn't get on the ship, but it says he, he was forced to because he knew they were going to kill him. So there may have been a plot to do something on the ship that he found out about. So he decides to go actually uh, back through Macedonia to go home. He's just going to take the land back because he can't take the ship. Um, so on his way back, he stops by at Philippi again. Here we go. We'll get back to Philippi. There we go. He get back, gets back to Philippi, and he picks up Luke, okay? So that's kind of where we are. Um, oh, no, a little, little bit further. He gets back to Philippi. He picks up Luke, and he, the, 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 some of the other guys went ahead. He stopped at Philippi to pick up Luke. Some of the others went on ahead to Trous, and finally he joins them, and that's where we pick it up in verse 7, all right? So he's, they're now together again. Luke and the rest of kind of his group, uh, who he mentions in some of the letters as he goes. And here they are in Tros. And um, again, he's just trying to get home at this point. But of course, when he gets to Tros, uh, it says this. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. And again, Luke is talking in first person again, because now he's with him. We came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people. And because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. A lot of things worth noting just in this first sentence. This is the first time that we're told with certainty that the Christians are gathering on the first day of the week. Remember, that doesn't, that's unusual. The Jews were gathering on the Sabbath, right? So we don't know why. We don't know exactly how that happened. This is the first sort of official indication of it. Is it, is it just happenstance? or I, I don't know. The way it says it, it sounds like there was a plan to do it. The other thing, though, to remember is when he says we came together to break bread, this is a, obviously a, a very religious and spiritual thing. It also is probably a meal. And the other thing to recall is Sunday was a work day for all the Jews because Saturday was the Sabbath. So they would have, in fact, been after a day of work. This would have been in the evening, which explains his speaking till midnight, right? If we think he started at 10 in the morning, that's, that's even more aggressive, right? It's bad enough that it's probably six hours, but, but he's starting at probably six or seven or somewhere in that time. So 
This is after they've been working. They gather together to break bread. And Paul knows he's going to leave. He knows he's got one shot at this. And we begin to see, and this is really important, listen to the words he uses, watch what he does. We begin to see very clearly that as Paul gets closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem, he's becoming more and more certain that he might die. That this may be the last time he sees any of these people. And I think that's one reason here he's talking so long. It's because this may be his final words. He wants to make sure everybody's going to be okay. So he, he says, because he planned to leave the next day, he kept on talking till midnight. This is a great story. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Why mention the lamps? Possibly to explain how he could keep talking so long, right? Because they have to keep relighting the lamps. They have to have a lot of lamps. It also might be because some people say that maybe the uh, oil lamps were putting off fumes, which uh, have something to do with what happens to poor Eutychus here in a second as well. Um, but it says, seated in a window, all right? And you think, why would you sit in a window? Well, there's a lot of people in this room, right? You sit wherever you can. And the windows in these buildings, you've got to remember, they're not like our windows. They're big sills. They're, they're actually really natural places to kind of sit. Plus, if it's warm at all, and it probably is, then it's a good place to sit. In fact, it's probably kind of a prime seat there. So here he is, seated in a window, was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Um, I just would love to pull out this anytime someone says that my sermons are too long. You know, well, just like Paul. It's not midnight yet. What's your problem? Um, but, but actually, it's interesting. The word here, sinking into a deep sleep, that word is actually, a, it indicates a struggle. He's actually, the poor guy's trying not to fall asleep, right? But it's happening despite him. He's like, oh, he's trying to pay attention. But remember, he's been working all day. It's now about midnight. I mean, it, really, I don't think there's anything in this, in this passage that indicates any sort of con- condemnation of Eutychus here, right? It's just the poor guy's trying. He's there. He could have gone home. This is not a mandatory meeting, right? He's trying. He's listening. He's working really hard to stay awake, but he just keeps, he can't help it. He's sinking. And then it says, um, when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Now, this is, this is, this is kind of a damper on the whole evening, to put it mildly. Here is Paul talking and talking and talking, and Eutychus is sitting in the window, and he falls asleep, and he falls out of the window. And people run down, and they pick him up, and they say, he died. And so Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. It It's interesting that Luke doesn't specifically say it, but I think it's clear that there was a healing that happened. I don't think it's that he wasn't really dead. This is like when Jesus would say, don't be alarmed, she's merely sleeping. And we all know, no, she was dead, right? So it's the same, he's just doing the same thing. He ran down there, he he brought the guy back to life. I love this. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And after talking till daylight, he left. So he runs down, he wakes, he, he, he resurrects Eutychus from the dead. Well, of course, you've just had an amazing object lesson. Knowing Paul, what's he going to go back up and talk about? Resurrection, right? That Jesus is the life. It's a perfect moment. Why would you miss it? So he runs back up and he just keeps going. And now they're all awake because this (laughs) amazing thing has happened. And he talks until daylight and then he left. And it says the people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. Now, here's the other thing to bear in mind. You know, this is a pretty amazing story. But the thing is, why would they be greatly comforted? Just because Eutychus ended up not being dead? Sure, of course. But I think more than that. Again, the nature of the world right now is Paul is constantly fleeing for his life. And so to actually see 
that God can bring people back from the dead would be very encouraging and comforting for you if you were afraid for your life as a Christian, right? So I think that that's part of what happened here. Paul is thinking, I got to talk to these guys. I got to give them strength. I got to encourage them. This may be my last time to see them. And God's like, just wait. I got a really good plan to give them strength, to comfort them and give them encouragement, you know, and it has to do with you being long-winded. You know, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where God works through our frailties, right? And I'm not sure it was a frailty, to be fair. I mean, I think Paul probably was speaking very well. Um, but that's just kind of an amazing story. Um, And again, I, I, think it, it is, it's, I think it's worth remembering, again, as we press forward, we get a real sense of Paul's continuing message. I suspect his message was about resurrection, that his message was obviously about the resurrection of Jesus, but about resurrection for people. And this was a great, a great object lesson. I've never been able to pull off an object lesson that well. Um, then he says, we went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. So they sail off. Uh, it doesn't really stop in our map for some reason. They, they kind of skip over this step. But it's, right, it's actually between Charles and Miletus, and it's somewhere on that little peninsula that jogs out. Um, so it says that they, they sail there, but Paul's going to walk. It's probably a little bit earlier than the peninsula because he can walk it in a day. And I, I think this is an interesting question. Why? Why send him ahead and walk? And I'm reminded of the times that Jesus did th- similar things. I remember the moment where he's actually like sends them across the, the Sea of Galilee in a boat and then he's going to walk across the sea. Um, and it doesn't seem like at the moment his plan is to make any sort of point. It's just that he wants to walk. And, and walking across the sea strikes me as a great way to get some alone time when everybody is trying to get a hold of you, Right. And I think Paul's in the same position. He just doesn't have the benefit of being able to walk across the sea when he wants to. And so he's, he sends them ahead because he's starting to be concerned. He's, he's a little burdened. He's starting to get this sense that things are closing down for him personally. And he wants to spend some time in prayer and he just needs some rest and everywhere. I mean, let's face it. He has not slept, right? Eutychus got a little nap. But Paul was talking the whole time and then he talked until daylight, and then he just, they headed off. So he hasn't rested. This guy's been preaching for 12 hours, and he hasn't rested at all. When I do the conference, I preach for eight hours with lots of interruptions and breaks, including a whole night, and I'm tired. And here he has done this for 12 straight hours with no, no real break. And so I think he just needed some alone time. So he's like, you guys, take the boat. I love you guys, but right now, it's a bit much. And I think that's a good, again, for all of us who, uh, you know, are, are want to serve people and we want to minister and we want to love, I think it's good to remember that both Jesus and Paul indicated it's important and it's okay, it's a positive thing to take a break, even from people, now and then. And Jesus did it a lot. He would get up early in the morning to be with the Father, to take a break from people. Um, there's a great story, for those of you who've been with us for a while, you may remember back in the Gospels, I entitled it Jesus' Longest Day. Because there's like this 36-hour day. And the thing that's funny about it is he keeps trying to get away and he keeps not being able to. <laughs> and you don't think there's anything wrong with him trying to get away. It just happens to be one of those days where, where the father just keeps saying, not yet. You, you, there's something else for you to do. Here's something else for you to do. But I just want it's okay to rest. You know, I um, Facebooked with Matt uh, Sellers today, the Paragon pastor who's over in Ethiopia, and was chatting with him, and I said, uh, I said, I remember when I was there in Ethiopia without my wife, I was pretty lonely. How you doing? 
And uh, he said, yeah, definitely a little lonely. He said, but truly, he said, I feel like for five years I've been going nonstop, and this is the first opportunity I've had to just kind of rest. And I told him, when you come back, um, let me know what I can do to make sure you rest. I said, it is a command, remember? But, but I think that that's, that's common. And I really, um, there's another pastor in town who asked if I'd fill in in the pulpit now and then, and what he said to me is, in 14 years, I've not had one Sunday where I didn't teach. I thought, that's just crazy. And, and so, you know, I think that's common. We, we just, we, we want to do things, and we should, but there's a reason that Jesus and God talk about the Sabbath, is because we need that break, we need that rest. Sometimes we need it from people, and that's okay. And I say that because it's easy to feel guilty about that. I think we should. Um, so anyway, they head over, he walks, and he meets them there. And it says, when he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. And that's where the, the map took us right there. Or I guess not. It didn't even go there. Skips that too. Took us to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there. We set sail from there and arrived off Chios. And the day after that, we crossed over to Samos. And on the following day, we arrived at Miletus. So there we go. You can see Mytilene's actually up there way ne- ne- near to Tros. So obviously, Assos is even closer. I don't know if you see it. It's right up there at the very top, kind of written over everything else. I must have put that in at some point. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. So here again, we have another example where he has an opportunity. He's passing by Ephesus. He could stop in. This is the church he spent two years with. This is the church that he's very bonded with. He loves this church. But the truth is, because he loves this church, he knows that if he stops there, he's going to be there for a long time, maybe days, maybe months. And so he thinks, I can't. I'd love to, but I can't stop there because I got to get back to Jerusalem before Pentecost. I want to get there by Pentecost because I got I to honor the feast and I've got to give these gifts to people because frankly, he's way behind schedule. Again, do you remember that? Because he was going to sail. He was just going to take a ship and now he's having to go across the land and he's just, there's just delay after delay, you know, and he's just, I think he's starting to feel this urgency. I got to get there. I have this gift. I've got to make it. Plus the feasts are coming and I really want to be there for the really important feasts. I want to be there. And so he's going to pass by Ephesus, um, but he decides at the same time, while he can't afford to go to Ephesus and spend a lot of time there, he decides at the same time that he cannot Again, getting more and more aware of the idea that he may never be back this way again, he needs, to, he needs to make one more shot. He needs to make sure everything's taken care of. He needs to talk to the elders. And so that's what he does. It says, uh, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. This is a long walk, right? This is not a, a little, you know, hop, on a, hop in a car and drive over here or hop on a plane and they'll meet you in an hour. This is a long walk. And yet he's asking them, would you please, you know, walk here to Miletus and talk with me? And they do. And I think it shows how much they respect and love and honor him. And so the elders come and they come to Ephesus. And when they arrived, he said to them, and here it is. And I want you to think about these. Again, he sees these as his parting words. He doesn't know if he'll ever see him again. And he sees these as his, as his uh, instructions to the leaders, to the elders, it says, to make sure that the church of Ephesus presses on. The other thing that we'll learn, actually, when we get to the book of Revelation, we'll talk more about this, is that, and we talked a little bit about it when we looked at Ephesians, is that Ephesus is in a really tough spot. Where they are is a tough place to have a church. They're a port city, they're an important city, and they're right in the middle of a cross-section of an incredible amount of pagan idolatry and other things going on. 
kind of like Corinth, um, and they're really, they're, it, it's a tough place to be. And Paul knows it, so I think he wants to shore them up some more. So this is what he says. Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church, and when they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plot of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. This is a great summation. Paul is not boasting. He's giving them an example, right? These are the elders. He's saying, how are you going to press forward when I'm gone? Look at what I've done. And he makes a number of really important points. He says that uh, I served with humility and tears, even though there were all sorts of people out to get me. And again, is he exaggerating? Uh, No, not at all. And he says, I served with humility and tears. And he says, I haven't hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. I've preached the whole council. I've preached everything that I could preach. I haven't held anything back. I think he's telling them the same thing. And in fact, he was there for two years. The idea that he preached through the entire Old Testament that they understood and showed them through the law and the prophets where Jesus was is a good possibility. I think that's likely what he did. He had two years to do it, probably similar to what we do here, but he was quicker than I was. Um, at doing. Although, to be fair, he may have done it every day. Um, when we look at what happened in Ephesus, there's indication that he had a little schoolroom and people came in daily and he would teach the class every day. So if we were doing this every day, we probably wouldn't have taken as long either. <laughs> so we'll give him that. Uh, but nonetheless, that's what he did and that's what he's telling them and he's encouraging them to do the same. Don't hold back what you need to teach. Interesting, he gives us a little glimpse again into the way the church is functioning. He says publicly and from house to house. Acts has repeatedly given us this understanding and this notion that the, the church did not only take place in groups, in small groups, from house to house, and it didn't only take place in large gatherings, but it took place in both, that both happened. That there were public teachings, which were in marketplaces and temples and synagogues and, and large areas, and that there were also regular house-to-house small group functions. I, I don't think it's an accident that a lot of churches, most churches, um, try to apply both those, those things. And sometimes we feel like we're really far afield from what the New Testament church looked like structurally, and I'm not sure we are, um, just in that regard. And so I think that's a good thing. I say, good. <laughs> I think there's some things there. And I think we all intuitively and probably by experience know there's a difference between a public teaching and a small group gathering. It's not the same. It has a different effect, a different impact. Um, but Paul was involved in both, right? I, went, I did both. You know, I'd come help you in your house to house, and I taught publicly, and you know that I did all this. And then, again, remember, he's just written Romans not too long ago. He's reiterating this really important point. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. You know that my message is the same, regardless of who I'm speaking to, is really the bottom line. So he says, this is my example. Follow my example. He says, now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. So in this statement, he tells us what he's feeling. He feels compelled. He has to go. That's why he felt compelled not to go into Ephesus. If he were just traveling and visiting, he would have loved to go in there. But he feels compelled to get back to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's saying, it's time. Let's go. Let's get moving. And you can't get moving quickly. You just have to, I mean, you just have to walk a long way. <laughs> you have to travel by boat or, or overland a long way. And so he's just, he's saying, I feel compelled. He says, but at the same time, I don't know what's going to happen to me when I get there. You start to sense. He's thinking, this is not 
Uh, this may not be for me personally a great thing when I arrive there. And he goes further. He says, um, I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. He says, every city I go to, not, and he's not just saying there's riots. He's saying every city I go to, the Holy Spirit is impressing upon me that every step I take is taking me closer to prison and hardships. So again, let's, let's look at Paul and let's treat him real for a while, for a second. If, you can probably imagine a conflict of emotions here. On the one hand, he is brave, he is faithful, he does want to do what the Holy Spirit is compelling him to do, so he's going to press forward regardless. But on the other hand, I don't think he's tickled to death with what the Holy Spirit keeps telling him about what's going to happen, right? You see that? I mean, I think this is hard for him, but he's going to keep going, even knowing this, even every step is taking him closer to a kind of doom, and he doesn't turn around and run. And we should follow that example, but we can only follow that example if we see it in, in real light and understand that there is a level of discouragement and fear that comes. And we see indication of that, by the way, as we keep going. Not that he does anything wrong, but that God keeps having to say, it's okay. God keeps having to remind him not only that there's hardship coming, but that God is with him. And whenever God is reminding our biblical heroes that he's with them, it's usually because they need that reminder, <laughs> right? It's usually because they're, they're, they're wondering a little bit about it. Um, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. He says, I just, I have a job. I have a task. I have a calling. I have something set before me. Now remember, Paul preaches about the resurrection all the time, so he knows this is not the end. If, I, if this leads to death, great but I want to finish what I've been given to do before it happens. That's why he feels this urgency to get to Jerusalem, I think. He just kind of has this sense, I got to keep going. I got to get there because the end is coming. The end is near, but not for everybody, just for me. <laughs> you know, the end is near. I got to keep moving. Um, and I just want to finish the task. I, I should have pulled up the verse, but I didn't. But I'll just remind you all way back when he, and he, he, he references this, but doesn't tell us specifically. When he um, meets with, Ananias, one of three Ananiases in Scripture. Is it Ananias or Cornelius? I don't remember. Someone will remember. The guy that he meets with after he's struck down on Damascus, and then he goes and the guy heals his sight. Is that Cornelius? Anybody remember? Let's say it's is it Ananias. Okay, we'll go with what Jeff said. And then if he's wrong, it's his fault. So um, he goes to Ananias, and Ananias heals his sight. But I don't know if you remember, but Ananias also prophesies. He tells Paul, here's what you're going to do. And he actually tells Paul at that time, two really, or three really important things. One, you're going to be God's ambassador to preach the gospel to the whole world, which is kind of an amazing thought. Number two, as you're doing this, you're going to preach to Gentiles, which at that time, Paul must have been like, that's totally bizarre, but that's exactly what happened. And number three, you're going to preach to kings. That hasn't actually happened yet. So I don't know if as Paul is thinking about this, he's thinking, but I haven't done all those things yet. You know, I've, I got to the Gentiles. I haven't done the kings yet. I don't know how that's going to happen. You know, I got to keep going. My task is not done. I have not testified everywhere that God said I was going to, to the gospel. And so I don't think he's anxious about it, but he's eager and he wants to press forward. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. That's a huge <laughs> statement. How does he know this? I don't know. It's just this sense that he's getting. I know that you will never see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. 
Quick little side note. It says he called for the elders of the church, he calls them overseers, and he calls them shepherds. And I think in scripture, these three terms, and overseers is often bishops. That's the same word. It's translated bishop in some of the scriptures. Overseers, elders, and shepherds seem to be used interchangeably throughout scripture. I am not sure that pastor actually is. Um, I'm not going to go too far afield because I don't want to be chased out of town. Um, but, but I think pastor may be slightly different. Pastor is usually referred to as a gift. And we'll see that a little bit too, I think, as we keep going. But nonetheless, sh- uh, shepherd, bishop, and over- uh, shepherd, overseer, or bishop, and elder seem to be very similar, um, if not identical thoughts. And he certainly uses them here for the same people. You are overseers. You're watching over the flock. I won't be here anymore. All right? So you have to watch over the flock. Um, and remember what I did. I proclaimed everything. I, went, I proclaimed the whole will of God. I think what we've done here, uh, I, am, I am not, as most of you know, actually you should all know because you've all heard me teach topically now, I am not opposed to teaching topically. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with it as long as you're teaching what's scriptural. Um, so I'm not one of those guys who thinks if you're teaching on Sunday mornings you're not teaching exactly through the scripture, you're wrong. I will say, though, that what we've done here, uh, going through chronologically through all of scripture, is a very special thing. And it has a very special weight to it. And it really gives us a big picture of the whole counsel of God, of the whole will. So I have become increasingly convinced over the years as we've done this, that this is something every Christian ought to do, one way or another, somehow. And so I'm really happy with what we've been doing. That's why I want to keep doing it. Um, But that's part of what Paul's saying. And like I say, it's entirely possible and plausible that he did exactly that, that he taught. Now, he didn't have to teach through his own letters, right? So we'd be done if we were him. But... um, (laughs) But, but he did, you know, he taught through the scriptures that they knew. I think that's entirely likely. That makes perfect sense to me um, that that's what he did with them in Ephesus and gave them a really good solid footing, which we're going to see bears them well, even though in Revelation they do get a reproof, and it's an important one. Their reproof is not for being doctrinally unclear, and it's not for being uh, not protecting the flock which is what he gives flack to a lot of other churches about. In Revelation, he says, you've done a good job at sticking to the faith and the doctrine and the truth. Does anybody remember what what he does call them on in Revelation? Losing their first love. With them, the problem is that they held to the doctrine, but they forgot who it was about. (laughs) So it's interesting, though, that what Paul is encouraging them to do, they apparently did, right? They apparently did manage to kind of hold on to this really they took what Paul said and went, this is our goal. And then, like we always do humanly, you know, once you have a goal, you, you forget that, you know, what the purpose is of that goal. And that became the end in and of itself, and they kind of lost their first love on some level. We'll talk about that clearly when we get to Revelation. Well, we'll talk about it. Hopefully, we'll talk about it clearly when we get to Revelation. Yeah. <laughs> we'll try. <laughs> Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I like that, that recognition I like that combining of the idea of being shepherds of those whom Jesus bought because I think it's really good for shepherds to remember that the flock doesn't belong to them, right? The flock belongs to the Lord. You're just shepherding the flock. We're just stewards of someone else's sheep. And I think that's hugely important. I think that, that when pastors forget that, that's, that's very problematic. That, that, that leads to lots of issues. But it's, I think it's, as a pastor, let me just say, it's very easy to forget. So I, I don't, I'm not condemning but I think that's a strong warning, and I think that's why Paul phrases it this way to them. You know, be shepherds of someone else's flock <laughs> that's been bought by someone else's blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. This is Paul. He's just like, look, I know it's going to happen. 
When I leave, there's going to be, because, you know what, I keep writing letters to people for whom this happens. <laughs> you know, everywhere I go, this happens. Soon as I go, there's going to be savage wolves. You guys have to stand guard. I won't be here anymore. You have to watch out for this, you know, and, and you can almost see this very paternal urgency he has to make sure that they're going to do what's right and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. What does he mean? Is he saying from among the people he's talking to right now? Could be. That's kind of icky and scary, right? But it could be. Or he could just mean people who come in among the church itself don't think all the wolves are going to come from outside. And does this happen? It happens all the time, unfortunately. It happens in a lot of churches. And, and those are the hardest wolves to fight because you're not quite sure, you know, where they're coming from. So, uh, it, but it's, it's a huge lesson to them, and he knows it, and he's wise enough to know it and to tell them, you just got to be diligent to watch out for this. And that's what he says, be on your guard. This is like huge. Stay alert, okay? You guys have got to do this for me. I won't be here. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears, all right? So for, for the two years he was there, as well as the year, you know, intervening, maybe he was there a little more than two years, however it works out, I take him at his word that for three years he's been warning them. And the point is that he, it's what he's had to do. It's like, he's, he's like, I know that for three years I've been constantly saying, no, don't give in to that. Don't listen to that. That teaching's wrong. That person's bad. They don't love you. Don't. He's like, I've been doing that for three years. I can't do it anymore. I'm going to be gone. You know I've been doing it, so now it's your job. Take ownership. Take responsibility. This is what I think when we look at what an elder, a bishop, an overseer, and, and for the sake of argument for now, we'll say a pastor is supposed to do. I think this is among the highest role they have is to protect the flock from wolves, is to guard that true and clear doctrine. Um, it's not the only thing, but it's among the highest part to oversee and to guard and to shepherd. And then, I love this too, because it's like he's really urgent. He's like, you've got to do all this, and he's really pouring all this in. And then I think the next statement is for him and them. He's like, well, I've done everything I can do. And I can walk away and be really anxious, and I can send letters every week and try to, you know, micromanage. (laughs) But he says, nope. He says, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He says, you know what? I just have to trust God's grace is big enough for you. It's not about me, right? It's really not. And, and so I'm just committing you to God and to his grace, and it's all going to be fine. Not just because I'm being optimistic, but because that's really what builds you up, is the grace of God, not me. So I think that's kind of a huge moment for him and for them, because that's probably the other thing. They're thinking, Paul, we can't do it without you. You know, we really, we've, we, you've been with us so long, I don't know if we can do this. And Paul's like, oh, you've got the same God and the same grace. You can do this. Um. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. Again, I think this is a little bit of an example to them. This is what you need to look for. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is fascinating and reminds us that Paul keeps reminding us, not even intentionally, not out of any boastfulness. It always just kind of slips through the cracks that he had lots of conversations with Jesus that other people did not have because this quote is nowhere in the Gospels. <laughs> so when did Jesus say this to him? I don't know, but he did. Now possibly it's a saying everybody knew that just didn't get recorded in the Gospels because we also know there's a lot of things that happened that weren't recorded. So it's possible everybody knew about it and he kind of says it that way, but, but maybe not. Maybe it was something Jesus said to him at one point. We don't know, but it's kind of fascinating. Every once in a while, it slips through the cracks that 
Paul's like, yeah, I had this conversation with Jesus, and I had this conversation with Jesus. And you're like, wow, crazy. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed, and they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieves them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. I had, when I was younger, this goofy picture of Paul as a very stern kind of apostle. And that is just not anywhere in Scripture. I don't know where I got that from. And I had this picture of John as this really mushy, tender apostle. And I figured out later, I kind of got them backwards. <laughs> because John is like always calling people children of the devil. You know, I'm like, wow, this guy. And he's the one who wanted to call, he, he's the one that wanted to call fire down on people. And he wanted to sit, and his mom came and said, I want you to put my children at your right hand. <laughs> I'm like, wow. And they called James and John sons of thunder. And I thought that was probably their mom, not their dad. Um, but, but nonetheless, it's, you know, John is this real force. But the thing, and, and I'm sure John actually was very loving. We do see that as well. But all I, all I mean is that what I really am getting to is that Paul is very tender and intimate. And in fact, to really read these and picture them very, for our culture, very weird. No, I mean, really, to, to see a guy who kneels down and weeps and embraces and and, and they kiss each other. That's just for us. We're like, what is where does man, man, manhood go? And yet he's a very manly man. There's no question about that either, right? He's an action hero in some ways, right? So he's climbing out of windows and being lowered in baskets, <laughs> all sorts of stuff. So he's like Jack Bauer, but he's got this whole ability to connect, which Jack Bauer doesn't have, right? Yes. <laughs> so he's just this interesting guy. And, and he really has this, this real intimacy with people. And I think that's important for men in our culture to recognize. That you, can, you can be strong and be really connected and really intimate. And, and he is. And, and, again, they're really, and again, this is, an, this is an emotionally tense moment. This isn't just like he's going to the grocery store. You know, this is he's never going to see him again. And they've known him for two years. They bonded with this guy. And he's saying, and think about it. With the congregation, you know, it's the elders who have probably spent more time with him and been more invested in him and him and them than almost anybody else in the church as well. So they're just really sad. It's just a real human moment. And it's interesting even that, that that's, what they, that's what they're thinking. They're not thinking wolves, wolves. <laughs> they're thinking, Paul, don't leave. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that's what's right now. Then they accompanied him to the ship. So they, they, they walk him to the car. You know, they wave till he's out of sight kind of idea. You know, they accompanied him to the ship. And even the next verse says, after we had torn ourselves away from them. Isn't that an interesting phrase? It's not just like we laughed. It's like we had to tear ourselves away. There was this, this wrenching that happened as we tore ourselves away from them. Um, after we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went on to Rhodes. I'm trying to remember if these actually show up. Uh, not really. But you can, see, you can see he passes by Patara there on the bottom, right under where it says Lycia. Do you all see that? So that's, that's mentioned in here. It says, um, uh, next day we went to Rhodes. From there to Patara, we found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing the south of it, that's that island there that they do pass by on the south, we sailed on to Syria. So finally, finally he's back in Syria, Okay. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with him seven days. So 
He gets there. He's finally in Syria. He knows that he's coming to the end of his journey and doesn't know what that means. But he's, but he's here in Tyre, and the disciples, like, meet him there, right? They're, they're waiting for him there. Um, and he, so they stay seven days. He's like, this is great. You know, it's, again, it's a reunion. He's spending time with them. In fact, this is interesting. There's no record in, in Acts of a church being built in Tyre. So either, as we know, this is one of those churches that the book of Acts just doesn't happen to mention. And that's one of the things we've learned is it doesn't tell us every single church that's planted. It just tells us mostly it's Paul's story. So could someone else have planted this church? Of course. Absolutely. Um, could it be that they came from somewhere else? Possible. It's more likely there's just a church there, especially since they all stay there for seven days. If they came from somewhere else, they probably all start heading back there. Um, so they're there in Tyre. It says, Though the Spirit ur- through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. This is fascinating. So they're not wrong. The Spirit is communicating to them that something bad is going to happen in Jerusalem, and they communicate this to Paul. At the same time, Paul is being compelled by the same Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Has it ever occurred to you that there might be moments where we might have a conflict with each other and it might actually be provoked by the Spirit. That sounds weird, doesn't it? But what we can see is that this conflict doesn't lead to a breakup of unity. Do you see that? They still love each other. They're still working together. And ultimately, as we're going to see, they defer. Somebody defers to somebody. Well, and the other thing is it's not a surprise to them. It's not a surprise to him. You know, I can see them like, wow, we're getting this really strong impression from the Holy Spirit that bad things are going to happen in Jerusalem. That's what they're getting. Their application is don't go. But what Paul is hearing is, yeah, I already knew this. <laughs> and so I'm still going. This isn't news to me. I understand. I get it. Out of your love, you don't want me to go. But what the Spirit's telling you is what I already know. And I still have to go. And ultimately, that's the conclusion they come to as well. They're like, well, okay. But I want you to see, again, it's like as he gets closer, the music is getting louder right? The, the moment is coming. We can, it's, boy, talk about foreshadowing. This is why I believe God writes our lives like stories are written. You know, he is, he is building that suspense, not for suspense purposes, but so that Paul is prepared for what's coming. Obviously not so that Paul won't go. That's clear that Paul's to go, but he, he keeps giving him these messages. So it says, uh, we saved them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when our time was left, was up, we left and continued on our way. Even that phrase, our time was up. How do they know when their time was up? They just did. You know, they had seven days. That's what God had allotted them in a sense. And when that time was done, Paul was like, it's time to go. I want you to notice too, though, Luke is very characteristically humble throughout this whole book of Acts. He's with Paul a lot. He doesn't ever trumpet himself. But think about these people who are going with Paul, who are hearing Paul say, hey, something bad's going to happen in Jerusalem. I may never see you guys again. Um, And then other people are saying, don't go to Jerusalem. And yet Luke and his companions continue to go with Paul. Let's not forget that they are exhibiting the same kind of bravery and faithfulness that Paul is exhibiting, right? Without Paul's confidence in some ways, they aren't getting these direct messages. (laughs) The only messages they're getting is this is a bad idea you know, and yet they're going with him. And so Luke doesn't say about it, but he goes with him. And throughout the rest of the book of Acts, Luke sticks very close to Paul through all his troubles, through all his hardship. I want you to bear that in mind. He says, um, when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city. Same thing. They're going to walk him to the car. You know, everybody is like recognizing we may never see this guy again. So they accompanied us out of the city and there on the beach, we knelt to pray. Kind of awesome, you know just as you get to the, to the boat. Let's, let's pray. 
Let's, let's, let's pray about this because you know what, Paul? We understand. You're going to do what you're going to do. We're still not sure about this. Let's at least pray that God is going to do something really good here because <laughs> we're worried. You know, I think that, again, real human interaction going on here. After saying goodbye to each other, we went on board the ship and they returned home. And you can imagine their conversation on the way home. You know, what is, do you think he was right? You know, do you think he was wrong? Should we have been stronger? You know, should we have made him stay? You know, and no, no, I think we did the right thing. You know, we, we prayed about it and but we trust Paul and I guess he's got to go. You know, let's just pray that it works out. You know, whatever. You can just kind of imagine that whole conversation. And that's not it because now we continued on our voyage from Tyre to Ptolemy uh, and landed at Ptolemy where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. So they, again, they're, they're getting little by little, they're getting closer to Jerusalem. You know, it's just like step by step. And um, leaving the next day, so they stayed with them. Nothing seems to significantly happen there, but they're getting closer. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. Now, there's a couple cool things about this. When it says one of the seven, it's telling us exactly who this Philip is. This is the Philip that, that we know two big stories about. One is that he's one of the deacons. He's one of the, that's what it means by one of the seven. You remember when they had that whole waiting tables thing at the beginning of Acts? And the, 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 there, wasn't, there wasn't parity between the Jewish widows and the, the convert widows. And so they, they appointed some men, some Gentiles, some Jews, to, to make sure the food was being distributed properly. And it says of those seven that all of them were mighty men of faith who were led by the Holy Spirit or filled with the Spirit. And Philip was one of those. The second big story we know about Philip, does anybody remember? Yes. That's the, that's the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch where he just is taken to this, this Ethiopian eunuch and he shares the gospel with him and the eunuch is like, great, there's some water, let's get baptized. Philip's like, okay, baptizes him and then he's gone. It says God took Philip away and you're like, wow, that's interesting. Um, but it also says, interesting, that it says in Acts 8.40, it says Philip, after God takes him away, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all towns until he reached Caesarea. So he's been there ever since. So it, that's what it says in 840. Now we find him here. Again, just one of those reminders. This is real story. These things actually happened. These connections make sense. And so he gets here to Caesarea. There's Philip. He's, you know, uh, Philip's been around longer than Paul in this, in this church thing, right? He's a good guy. And he may be a leader here in, in this church at Caesarea. We don't exactly know. But this is where they stay is at his house. Um, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. It's just like, and again, it's just one of those details that we don't know anything about them. We don't know what they prophesied, but we're just kind of told Philip has these four daughters. They live with them and they prophesy. Paul's like, that's kind of cool. I mean, you know, Luke's like, look at these guys. This is kind of fun. Whatever. You know, it's just thrown in there. Interestingly enough, they don't prophesy apparently um, about what is about to happen to Paul, or maybe they do. Maybe that's part of why he mentions it too. It says, after we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. So this guy has actually traveled down to find Paul. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Okay, so it's getting, it's like God is compelling Paul to go to Jerusalem, but he's giving him stronger and stronger warnings as he gets closer and closer. And again, if, if, if Paul is human, there's got to be moments in all this where he's thinking, am I making a mistake? You know, am I, am, I, am I doing the wrong thing? Because I keep getting these messages that are saying, don't do this. It can only be the grace of God and the compulsion of the Holy Spirit that keeps him 
confident that he's doing the right thing. And why does God keep giving him these messages? I think to prepare him, not to dissuade him, but to prepare him. It's, but, but the people who are giving him the messages, and this is what's interesting, the people who are giving him the messages don't know that. They, they assume that they're supposed to be stopping him. But all they're really supposed to do is give him the message. And so this is, again, this prophet is like all the prophets we read about in the Old Testament where they can't just tell you something. They have to demonstrate it for you, right? Really, isn't this, doesn't this remind you of like crazy Zeke and, and all those guys? And so uh, Agabus comes up and he, and he takes the belt, which would just be a rope, right? And he just takes the rope off of Paul's, you know, uh, robe there. There's Paul's like, this is interesting. And... <laughs> And he ties his own hands up and he says, this is you, Paul. When you get to Jerusalem, you're going to be tied up like this and handed over to the Gentiles. And Paul's probably thinking a couple of things. One thing he's thinking is, you know what? Every warning I've been giving so far has been about the Jews, that the Jews were going to do me harm in Rome. And now you're telling me it's the Gentiles. Well, now I'm in trouble with everybody. So what, you know, and what is, what is this? What are you saying, God? And he says, And he says, when he heard this, the people there, we and the people. So Luke includes himself in this. You know, Luke's like, come on, Paul, we keep hearing this. We and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So they're pleading with him. Paul's wrestling with it. And then Paul's like, nope, nope, I gotta, I gotta. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? This is interesting too. It's like, he's ready to face it. But the hard thing for him is that everybody else is so sad about what he's facing. I had a... um, uh, Dear, dear friend, one of my best friends, known him since second grade, um, uh, who uh, I, I had the pleasure of sharing the gospel with him uh, when we were both uh, about eight, uh, 20, I guess, 21, 22. And um, he got saved, and, and I have known him for years and years since then. And just last year, or just, yeah, last year, um, just before Christmas, he died of cancer. Uh, just a very fast strain of cancer that kind of came in, took him quickly. And... Um, uh, I actually drove out to visit him because kind of like Paul, I knew from his end, this would be the last time I would see him. So I, I drove to uh, Missouri and I uh, got to see him and, and it was interesting because he was, he, was, he was definitely an example of faith. I mean, he was, you know, he wanted to stick around. He had young kids and wife and he, he wanted to stick around, but he also just, you know, he said, if this, this is what God's got. This is what God's got. And, and I know that is, isn't the end, you know, and I know he'll take care of things. And I was very impressed by it. And I never, you know, I never saw him get really hugely emotional about it, except the very last day when I was, which was the hardest, because this was the moment I knew when I walk out this door and drive back, I'm not going to see him again. And as I was saying goodbye to him, I, you know, I, I got weepy and I couldn't help it. I was trying not to, you know, but I couldn't help it. And that was the first time that he got kind of emotional. And I could tell he was emotional. He felt bad for me. And this is what I see in Paul. It's like, Paul's like, it's okay, but I just feel bad that you're, you're, you're having a hard time. And that's what I saw in, in John, was not that he was scared and not that he was, again, I think he was concerned for his family, but, but not that he was just sort of sad in a sense to be leaving. But, but when he saw how sad I was, it just, he said, he basically said, this is really hard, just go. <laughs> I said, no, well, not just go. So I gave him a hug, and then I went. But, but I think Paul's the same way. He says, why are you breaking my heart? You know, I, I'm going to go. And here, Luke, Luke, you've been with me through all this. You've watched all this. Why are you breaking my heart? 
He says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is interesting because nobody yet has told him he's going to die, right? But I think this is, is partly he's saying, I'm ready for anything. But I think it's partly he's saying, I think that might be what's going to happen. Now, it turns out he's wrong, but he doesn't know. You know, he's thinking that that might be what's going to happen. And I'm okay with it. I'm ready for that. And I think even that statement, I'm ready. Why is he ready? Because ever since he couldn't sail to Syria and he had to go through the landlocked area, he's been being prepared every step of the way. He says, every city I go to, the Holy Spirit tells me, this is what you're headed towards. This is where you're going. This is what's coming up next. Which, by the way, maybe part of the reason he couldn't really sail to Syria was so that God could have him go through those other churches and talk to Ephesus and talk to the Tyre and, and have a chance to say to all these churches, hey, uh, this may be it. So, so he says, but I'm ready. I'm ready to do this for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and we said the Lord's will be done. I, I love that it, Luke doesn't say we agreed because I don't know if Luke did at that moment, right? But he does say we gave up. And we said, you know what? We're just going to have to trust God. You might be wrong. You might be right. But we're going to trust God to do what God will do. And that's, what, that's okay. That's what we can do. And again, when we do have moments, I think we're, because again, all I see in this is people behaving righteously, faithfully, and lovingly. I don't see anybody who's warning him doing anything wrong. All the people who are trying to dissuade him from what God wants him to do, they are incorrect but they're not really wrong. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so I see them that, and, and I think that happens. I think we have to remember that can happen. We can have that kind of disagreement where God is leading you to go one way and people are saying, I don't get it. You know, if it's not clear sin, and this is clearly not clear sin, you know, where we say, okay, you know, there comes a point where you defer. You say, you know what? I'm going to trust God to work through it. You might be right. You might be wrong but I'm just going to be united with you and trust God. In Luke's case, it's very impressive because he not only gives up and says the Lord's will be done, but he says, I'm going with you. It, not even knowing for sure if what Paul's doing is, is really 100% the right thing, he's going to stick with Paul because that he knows is the right thing, which again, I think is pretty impressive. After this, we got ready, right? So they do this and then, right, and then it's like, okay, we're done. No more argument. We'll head out. After this, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. There we go, Jerusalem. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. And Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Whatever was supposed to happen, it doesn't start out bad at all. When they get there... The brothers in Jerusalem are like, oh, Paul, we are so happy to see you. You know, they're warm. They welcome him. Then they go meet with James. This is James, the brother of Jesus. This is James the Apostle's already dead. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who we were told was a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. He's basically leading the church in Jerusalem, all right? So they go to see James and the other elders, right? So the, the other overseers, the other bishops, uh, the other shepherds, and... Um, so Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Now that makes sense because Paul, among other things, has to come give a gift. So where are you going to give it? That makes perfect sense. You would give it through the elders and through James, right? Um, Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And you have to remember, years and years have gone by. It, they need an update, right? It's very different from our world. News doesn't spread that quickly. They've heard things for sure. We find out some news has spread quickly. But nonetheless, he, he needs to kind of update them. 
It says, when they heard this, they praised God. So here again, James and the elders and those leading in the church in Jerusalem, they're not those who are opposed to what Paul's been doing. Because, I don't know if you remember, but earlier in Acts, they had this council where he actually went back to Jerusalem. They discussed it. They did have some argument and some tension, but they came to understand that God was doing amazing things among the Gentiles. It must be what Paul wanted. And they even came up with this little thing that said, well, okay, so the Jews, we have a lot of ceremonies, a lot of rituals, a lot of laws. A lot of them are going to keep doing that. What are we going to, are we going to require anything of the Gentiles? Because that's what the Jews question. Do they have to follow the law? Do they have to become a Jew? And they decided on kind of this compromised position, which I think made perfect sense in the culture in which they were in, in which they said, we're just going to tell them they need to do four things. Um, and they're going to list them again here, so I won't even bother to try to remember. It's fascinating to me that three of those four things, and I think we should hold on to the fourth one, that's not my point, but three of these four things we no longer regard as important for Gentiles to do. And again, I think it shows us that in the context of the cultures we live in, God wants us to kind of re-examine how to apply the universal principles of the gospel and that they will shift, not the universal principles, but the applications from culture to culture to culture. And we have to rework it out. So anyway, they're, they're on board with him though. They hear what's happened with the Gentiles and they praised God and they're really excited about it. But they have something else they need to address with Paul. It says, then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. Let me ask you guys, do you think, from what we've read, that that's a fair accusation against Paul? Of course it's not. Even that phrase that you're calling them to turn away from Moses, how do you think he would react to that? No, he, he totally sees Moses as in conjunction with where the Messiah came, right? He would say, I would never tell him to turn away from Moses, right? And he certainly wouldn't say, yeah, I go around telling him not to circumcise their children. He's not even saying that. In fact, we know that at least in one case, he circumcised one of the uh, uh, Jewish, Greek, I don't know what to call them, hybrid sounds like a bad word. Um, what do you call that? Mixed race? I don't know what to call it. I'll just say hybrid. He, uh, what's that? Thank you. He, he had this guy who had a Greek parent, a Jewish parent, and he had him get circumcised just so the Jews wouldn't, would listen to the ministry. So we do understand he had lots of times when he took a stand and said, circumcision will not bring you salvation. But we also know that Paul has no problem with people doing things of the law as part of their worship of the Lord as long as they understand it isn't their righteousness. And in fact, Paul himself at one point takes a Nazarene vow. I don't know if you remember that, but on his journeys at one point, it says he took a Nazarene vow. Why? I don't know. It was part of his worship of God. But he knew that Nazarene vow didn't have anything to do with his righteousness or his place before God. And that's where he draws the line. Do people understand this, is, this may be a way that we worship, that we, that we connect with God, but it's not the way that we earn our righteousness or really have our, our connection with God. That comes through Christ alone. So these things he, they're saying, that's not what he does. You can understand how that's the, the, the gossip, right, that gets to you because he's spending a lot of time saying the law will not get you saved. So the Jews are like, he's preaching against the law. So we're beginning to get a hint of what the problem is, of why they may not like him here, because there's thousands of them. They're in Jerusalem. Is it any surprise that they're zealous for the law in Jerusalem? Of course not. This is, this is again, the way that they've known. This is the way God told them to connect with him. And again, I don't think God told them they had to stop. They just had to recognize these were all pictures and ceremonies of the Lord and the Messiah. As long as they remember that, and aren't, aren't tempted to think those are the, the salvation or the righteousness of the Messiah, there's room for that. 
Um, which explains, by the way, Paul's reaction. Because again, if you misunderstand Paul, you might think at this point that Paul would be like, no way, put my foot down. I will not, I, I don't care. They're wrong. I'm going to go out and I'm going to preach to them that they're wrong. But actually they offer him, the, the elders very wisely, I think, say, here's something we can do. It's kind of like when you circumcised your buddy. Here's something you can do that we think will give you an inroads with them. So they'll listen to you. So they know that you're not who they think you are. And this is what they say. Um, what shall we do? They will certainly hear you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so they can have their heads shaved. In other words, go through this purification with them so people see you're not opposed to it. But not only that, sponsor them. Right? Show that you're in support of them by sponsoring them to do it. And here again, Paul's reaction is not, not going to do it. His reaction is, you know what? Whatever will give me the best opportunity to make the gospel clear. In this case, doing this will. This won't, I think, confuse people. I'm willing to do this. Um, then everybody will know there's no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Those are the four things that the council had agreed on. And I think they're mentioning it here to remind Paul, hey, we've been willing, you know, we've, we've supported you as you've worked with the Gentiles in ways that, that were compromises to some of our people, we're just asking you to support us as we're working with the Jews in ways that are compromised for you. And again, as long as we're not compromising the essence of the gospel in either case, there should be no problem. No, he doesn't feel, he doesn't. But he also encouraged us very much as we went through Romans, if someone does, let them do that. Don't let it stand in the way. So that's what he's doing here. He's applying all those things we read in Corinthians and Romans where he said, don't let your freedom cause someone else to lose sight of the gospel. He's about to apply it here. He's about to say, I don't have to do any of these things. I don't need to do this purification. But as long as I can be clear about what the gospel is, and I think he's believing the elders that they're teaching the gospel accurately as well, right? So he's kind of relying on that, that this isn't going to cause confusion. Then I have no problem with it. And that's what he says. Um, the next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to, temple, to, to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. And when the seven days were... So he does it. He does exactly what, what, what made the most sense so that people can see. And here's where you can argue if you want that he shouldn't have made the compromise. I don't. I think this is in line with what Paul did. I think it was wise. I think he should have done this. But we also see it didn't make any difference. <laughs> The people who were going to believe what they were going to believe were going to believe it anyway. <laughs> so if he was doing it because he was confident that it would be magic, uh, then he's wrong. But I don't think he was doing it for that reason. I think he was doing it to do everything he could to be at peace with everybody. Again, we see all these things he said about love, he's applying. And it just doesn't make any difference. This is one of those moments where it didn't depend on him, and he couldn't be at peace with them. But all he wants to do is share the gospel, and we're going to see that over and over here. It says, um, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. So they're like, oh, wait a minute, that's that guy. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled the holy place. Not a single word of what they said was true. In fact, Luke explains, they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. What a stupid assumption. I mean, what, why would you make that assumption? There's no reason to. You'd only make it because you want to have something against him, right? He hangs out, but, but also notice what's really at the heart of this. 
Remember how I mentioned that Paul talks about what an amazing thing it is that the Jews and the Gentiles are now together? And I talked about how the level of, of racial bigotry between Jews and Gentiles is stronger than we get a grasp of. That's where they're coming from. They saw Paul with a Greek being buddies with a Gentile, and that's really all it took. They didn't care if he brought him into the temple. They just think it was wrong that he was with him. Does that make sense? It just shows the level of the bigotry that really is here. This is what bothers them. We're going to see that again. It's not that he's really preaching against the law. It's just that he's preaching to Gentiles at all. That's really what's the problem here for these guys. Well, you can tell they were prepped and they were ready, right? They were anxious to do this already. Um, the whole city was aroused, as you said, and people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. How do you think the, the, the Roman governor of Jerusalem feels about that? No, no, no. That's terrible because if Caesar hears about this, that's really bad because your one job is to keep peace in Jerusalem, right? If they're rioting, you're not doing your job. So they're very concerned about this. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. And when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. All right. So this is mob riot. They are beating him. I think we have to acknowledge that even with the, the time that it would take the Roman soldiers to come um, and the number of people that are beating on Paul, he's probably in pretty bad shape. I think that's, because I, I don't think they were holding their punches. Do you think? I think they were trying to kill him, right? So I think that's what we, that's what we see. He says, um, the commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. There's the prophecy. Ironically, this is done to protect him, right? And yet it is the prophecy. You will be bound and handed over to Gentiles. That's what's happening right now. Um, then he asked who he was and what he had done. So they're like, they're binding him. They're like, what did you do? <laughs> and, and it says, some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He's like, what did this guy do? And some people are like, well, he, you know, he eats children. And other people are like, yeah, and he, he, you know, kills puppies, you know, and whatever, whatever they can think of, you know, and but he can't tell what in the world is going on. So he's like, okay, we're just going to get him out of here and we're going to take him to the barracks. We're going to basically lock him up, but for his safety as much as anything, but also to stop the riot because this is not good. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. That doesn't mean dragged. That means lifted. It's like they're lifting him over their head so that the, 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 the ravenous mob can't tear him to pieces. This is, this is crazy, but they're carrying him off. Um, and the crowd that followed kept shouting away with him, which really just means kill him. Let's not think that's a polite phrase, you know, <laughs> get him out of our sight. No, it means off. It's like off with his head for those like Alice in Wonderland days. Um, as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Now, this is fascinating because when he asks him that, okay, here we are in Jerusalem. He speaks in Greek. We know that because the commander responds with, wait, you speak Greek? He speaks in Greek, but I want you to notice he not only speaks in Greek, but he speaks in um, very polite Greek. In other words, he could have said, what are you doing to me? Or stop, or I have something to say. But he says, may I say something? It's, and it's got to be very startling that not only is he speaking Greek like an educated person, but he's not panicked, right? Here's this guy's just been carried out of a crowd that's trying to kill him. And what he says is, hey, can I, can I say a little something? 
<laughs> I mean, it's just he's not, he doesn't look like the revolutionary that he's being painted to be. And he says, may I say something to you? And he says, do you speak Greek? He replied, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out in the desert some time ago? So Josephus mentions an Egyptian who, who led 4,000 men to the Mount of Olives and threatened to take over the Temple Mount. And the Roman troops quickly scattered the 4,000, but the Egyptian got away. And for whatever reason, as he's been trying to sort out who this guy is, that's who he's decided Paul is. You must be that Egyptian. <laughs> Paul's thinking, no, not really. Um, Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. This is also crazy. He's like, hey, I'm a Jew. And by the way, that mob that wants to kill me, I'd just like to talk to him for a minute. <laughs> the guy's like, whatever. <laughs> Okay. I mean, I think he's impressed by Paul's demeanor, and he thinks maybe he can calm them down. I don't know what's going on. He says, having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. It's just like, and they all listen. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic. And I realized the other day, because someone asked me that when we mentioned that someone speaks a language in Aramaic, I don't think I've ever made it clear in all this context that Aramaic is Hebrew. Okay, so that's what the Jews were speaking. It's a, it's a dialect of Hebrew, okay? Um, so, so this is what he's doing. He just talked to the Roman guards in Greek. Now he's going to speak to the Jews in Hebrew. Again, this is an educated man. He's got a unique position. And we're going to see how unique he is as he gets going here. But he says, brothers and, sister, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. The word he uses for defense is a legal term. He's saying, look, you're accusing me of something. Let me defend myself. It's the word apologia. It's the word we use for apologetics when we talk about Christian apologetics. So he's saying, let me defend myself for a second. But I also want you to picture Paul. I want you to picture this scene if you can. And remember, Paul has just been beaten mercilessly by a huge mob. So he's not an impressive figure right now. He's probably leaning against a guard or something. He's probably breathless. He's trying really hard. He's probably impressive but not uh, strong looking. You know what I mean? I think he's impressive because he's talking and he's, and he's talking to them. But I just want you to kind of picture what it really looks like. He's in bad shape. He's got to be in bad shape. Um, but he says, brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. And when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high priest and all the council can testify. They know this because they gave me permission. Remember, he was acting on their authority. Now, also remember, this was 20 years ago, though. So it's, it's understandable he has to explain this because <laughs> they don't know who he is. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you'll be told all that you have been assigned to do. And my companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias, there we go, I knew we'd get there, came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. 
Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. Remember how I said Paul has all these conversations with Jesus. There it is. You will be a witness to all men of what you've seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple. So then he kind of compresses the story because there's actually like two or three years in here after this where he goes off and then he comes back to the temple in Jerusalem. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance. But he does tell us something we haven't heard before. And I saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Do you notice? They listen all the way. They have no problem with them talking about Jesus. They have no problem with them talking about talking to Jesus. They have no problem with them talking about these amazing visions and these amazing healings. But when he says the word Gentiles, that's it. They're done. We knew it. We knew it. You know, lynch him. You know, to borrow other racial tension phrase. You know, get rid of him. Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks. Now, I want you to picture, where do you think Paul was going? What do you think his plan was here if he hadn't been interrupted? What's his plan always? Yeah, I think he was trying to tell them who Jesus was. He wanted to share the gospel with them, but he gets to the Gentiles and that's it. They're not going to listen. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, all signs of complete mortification. Like we've been corrupted even by listening to this man. The commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks because they're going to tear him apart. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. This seems to be the Romans' favorite thing to do when they don't know what to do with a Jew. They just want to take him, flog him, and then maybe everyone will be nicer to him because they flogged him. They tried this with Jesus too, remember? And so they're getting ready to flog him and question him in order to find out why the people are shouting at him. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Paul is a smart guy, and again, he doesn't want to be a martyr right? He's not going to take a beating if he doesn't need to. So he says, hey, by the way, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? He has not until this moment mentioned that he's a Roman citizen. (laughs) He just sort of neglected to bring that up. But now they're getting ready to flog him and he's like, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen. Now this is like the, 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 you know, the, the, um, what's the name? I've suddenly forgotten. Yes, it's like that. Um, anyway, doesn't matter. This is like in America, there's certain rights the citizens have. And if you don't have your Miranda rights, you don't have something like that, you're in trouble. You're going to lose your whole case. More than that in Rome, you might even be executed because that's kind of what happens when anybody's not happy with you. Um, and so he standing, he says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. And the, um, the centurion heard this. He went to the commander and reported and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked, this man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? One of the things I read is that they didn't require papers because you could find them, but because there were such stern penalties for pretending to be a Roman citizen, meaning immediate death, that generally you could ask people and the punishment was so known and so clear that people would tell you the truth. Because if they found out later, that was it. So they trust that you can just ask and they're going to tell you the truth. So that's what he is. Are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. Now, there's a couple of interesting things going on here. One is, I think he's looking at Paul. Paul looks terrible. And he's thinking, well, they let anybody be a Roman citizen these days. I mean, I think that's what he's thinking. He's like, 
wow, they just let anybody in the door. And, and by the way, there is, no, there is no historically monetary ability to pay for citizenship. So he's probably talking about a bribe is what he's probably talking about. He just, he just was able to bribe his way into it. And that's probably why he's like, well, I guess they'll let anyone in. Um, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. That's fascinating, and we don't exactly know why. Um, but it says those who are about to question and withdrew immediately. It's like they do that, and they're like, oh, hands off. You know, we're not here. Didn't see him. You know, it's like they just discovered they were being videotaped. Those who were about to question and withdrew immediately, the commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. He's like, forget the beating. I arrested this man with no cause, and he's a Roman citizen, and I have no charge against him. This is a problem. They're suddenly very concerned about it. As far as Paul being a Roman citizen, he says by birth. That means either his grandfather or his father was a Roman citizen. But we know that Paul is, has a strict, long heritage of Judaism. He's said that many, many times. So what happens is, I said you couldn't pay for Roman citizenship, but you could be rewarded with Roman citizenship. So what probably happened is either his grandfather or his father at some point did something that the emperor thought was worthy of being rewarded with Roman citizenship. And once that's awarded to you, then yes, your children are Roman citizens. That, that's just all it takes. Um, and so that must have happened. What's kind of interesting is we get this kind of Esther-ish kind of idea here that some point in Paul's ancestry, grandfather or a father, was rewarded with Roman citizenship precisely for this moment. So to this moment, Paul could say, Roman citizen. <laughs> Which is kind of, again, watching God kind of pull all the pieces together. When the grandfather was rewarded with it, he had no idea it would be for his grandson, you know, or what it would mean, how big a deal it would be. So it's kind of cool just to see God kind of laying them out. It's also interesting that Paul has held this close to his chest for the entire New Testament until now. <laughs> he's like, did never talk about it. And now he's like, oh, by the way, did I forget to mention? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if he had any children, which he didn't, as far as we know, uh, then he was, he was uh, they would be Roman citizens. The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him, also because he was very scared, and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. This is also familiar. This also happened to Jesus. Because when you do have somebody who's, who's not violating Roman law, but the Jews are really angry with them, then what you do is you take them to the Jewish law. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish law. That's where they got to decide. Uh, they, were, they were authorized by the Roman government as well as by the Jewish people to make legal decisions and condemnations of people. And it's comprised of Pharisees and Sadducees, sort of the, the main leadership groups together. Um, then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. By the way, as I'll show you later, Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin 20 years ago, uh, a long time ago. So he knows how the Sanhedrin works. He knows who they are. He was one of them. Again, they probably don't know this because it was 20 years ago, but he was. Paul looked straight, or it, it seems like he was. There's an interesting wrinkle to that in a second. But Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin. So again, here he is. He's not afraid. And he said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Who thinks that is a really provocative statement? I don't either. But the high priest thought this was a really outrageous statement. I don't know why. I have no idea why. I don't know if he felt convicted. Like, oh, he's in good... I don't know. I have no idea why. But the high priest's response is, at this, the high priest Ananias, not to be confused with the Ananias that died with Sapphira or the Ananias that Paul went to after he was blinded. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. So he just, he tells him, you, hit him. So 
Apparently they do. Then Paul said to him, and I think you have to hear this angrily, although I'm not saying that it's inappropriate. You have to hear it angrily. It just doesn't make any sense otherwise to me. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. And I think his anger isn't just that he was struck, but then in fact the high priest did break the Jewish law. The law was, it says specifically, you may not strike somebody who hasn't been convicted of anything. It's, it's, it's completely wrong. And here this, this guy has done it. And Paul's like, you're a whitewashed wall. You, you look all good, like you should be in the Sanhedrin, but you, don't, you aren't even worth the Sanhedrin. You know, he's almost defending his 20-year-old habit in a sense. He's just like, that is wrong. Um, those who were standing near Paul said, you dare to insult the God's, uh, God's high priest. And Paul answers very interestingly. Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. This is fascinating because, again, having read Romans 13 and that discussion we had about how we should respond to authority, Paul is showing a really high level of respect for an authority that's clearly in the wrong right now. But once he realizes it's the high priest, he actually apologizes. He's like, oh, you're absolutely right. I had no idea. Now, he still thinks, the, he's probably really astonished that the high priest broke the law, but he still recognizes it's not my place. I'm not going to speak against him like that. So he actually apologizes. Again, there's probably also some savvy realizing that being on the wrong end, you know, the wrong side of a conflict with a high priest is probably not a good idea at this point in his life. So some of it is probably just a, a little bit of shrewdness, which he does have. Then Paul, knowing that some of them, and speaking of shrewdness, I love this, Paul, knowing that some of them are Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin. So here's what you have to know. Sadducees and Pharisees, similar in a lot of ways, but the Sadducees were kind of like the liberal theologians of the day, and the Pharisees were the strict scripture-abiding theologians of the day. And so, the, and, and one of the ramifications of that was that the Pharisees believed in resurrection, and they believed in angels, and they believed in spirits, and the Sadducees did not. They didn't believe in resurrection, they didn't believe in angels or spirits, they took a very sort of metaphorical approach to scripture. And the, so here they are in the Sanhedrin together, so Paul knows this because he knows the Sanhedrin. So he calls out in the Sanhedrin. He says, my brothers, I am a Pharisee. So right off the bat, he aligns himself with one side, right? He knows there's a split here in the Sanhedrin already. So he aligns himself honestly, because this is true, with one side. He says, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. But then he hits the hot button for the Sadducees and the Pharisees, because this is one of the arguments they have. I don't know if you remember, but it was the Sadducees who came to Jesus at one point and gave him that whole question about if a woman marries a man and then he dies, and so she marries his brother and he dies, and she marries his brother and he dies. Who is she married to in heaven? They didn't care who she was married to. They were trying to show how ridiculous in their mind resurrection was. That's, that was the Sadducees. So here they are. So, so Paul says, you know why I'm here? Because I believe in resurrection of the dead, which is a literally true statement. It's, it's Jesus' resurrection. That's the pinnacle for everything to him. But when he says it, exactly what he thought would happen happens. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, and the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. So even though he did cause this dispute, now he's still in the middle of it, and the commander's like, this is not working either. So he takes Paul. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. And the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you must testify in Rome. We're going to read the rest here pretty quick. So I just want to make this quick statement that, again, I think Paul is discouraged. I think that's why he says, take heart, be of good cheer, don't be discouraged. And I think the reason is 
what he wanted to do twice, he failed at. He wanted to share the gospel with the Jews, and he mentioned Gentiles, and they blew up at him. He wanted again to share the gospel with the Sanhedrin. He started with this very sort of non-offensive statement about being of good conscience, and then he lost his temper, right? And maybe he's thinking, oops, I blew it. I lost my temper. I yelled at the high priest. I didn't even know he was the high priest. I really messed up. And then he's like, the only thing I could do was stir up trouble. And then I didn't get a chance to share the gospel with them either. I mean, I think in his mind, he's thinking, I blew it. I blew it twice. I messed up. And now here I am in the, in the barracks again. And I think God is saying to him, it's okay. Because I have bigger plans for you. You have testified in Jerusalem. I'm going to lead you to testify in Rome. That's where we're going with this, Paul. Paul didn't know that until now. But now he's told him, that's where we're going with this. We're going to Rome. And I think that helped him out. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and found themselves, bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Stupid oath. And I don't know if they all died as a result of this. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we've taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. So we're just going to kill him on the way. Just get him out of the barracks. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul, I love these little touches of reality. Oh, Paul has a sister. That's kind of cool. What was she like? You know, and she had a son. He has a nephew. Paul has a nephew. That's like he's a real person. You know, I just kind of, it just reminds us these are real people with real relationships and real connections. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took, you can tell by the way, the fact that Paul can make these kind of requests, they still don't know what to do with Paul. They're treating him fairly well, to be honest. Um, the commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. And the commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you reported this to me. Good advice. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, tell me this is an overkill. Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul. They're going to actually let him ride so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He is really going all out here to protect Paul, to be honest. That's a lot of people for one guy that they don't even know who he is or why this is happening. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. I love this spin too on what happened. But I came with my troops and rescued him for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. That is not how it happened. <laughs> I wanted to know why they were accusing him so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law. But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment even though we've got him in prison. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against this man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him, which he apparently does at some point, although it doesn't tell us when. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they left the Calvary. Uh, they let the Calvary go on with them while they returned to the barracks. In other words, the whole group only went as far as they needed to. Um, the whole group went only as far as they needed to in order to protect him in the really rough spot. And then once they got far enough, they, they let just the cavalry go, just the horsemen. Um, 
The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from, and learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will keep your case. I will hear your case when your accusers get here. And then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. I suspect there are worse places to be held under guard. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, or Tertullus, Tertullus probably sounds a little too whimsical, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. I've got to say that's a complete lie. That's flattery, and it's completely false. There have been no peace. There's been no prosperity. Felix has been brutal. See you guys. Felix has been brutal, and he's been callous, um, and he's massacred thousands of Jews, in fact, in his time. So the fact that the Jews are here giving him uh, applaudits and, and telling him all these things just, is just flattery. They just want to be on his side. Um, Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. Lie, lie, lie. But in order not to worry you further, I would request that you would be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. Again, all false. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. I love this. We don't have any evidence, but we think if you talk to him, you'll find out we're telling the truth. I don't know what kind of prosecution this is. It's terrible. This is, this is amazingly bad um, because that's what they ended up saying. We don't have any evidence, but talk to him. Really? That's going to work. Okay. Um, what's that? It, that's true. That's true. That's true. Paul does defend himself, though, where Jesus did not. So um, the Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that the things were true. Yeah, that's right. That's true. It's all true. That's all we've got for you. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. I love how he doesn't flatter. He just states a really obvious fact. I know you rule, so I'm glad I'm here to talk to you. <laughs> he doesn't say you ruled well. He's just like, I know this is what you do, so I'm glad I'm here. Um, I mean, it's polite, but it's, it's, it's just funny in comparison to theirs. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Again, haven't violated any Jewish laws even. He's saying, I, I, I agree with all this stuff. And then he brings in the resurrection because he knows, again, the Pharisees like that. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this because he'd gone through the purification. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Where are the people who actually saw me doing these things? They should be here. Um, or those who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, interesting statement, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. I think being well acquainted with the way means he knows that their description of the way as a rebellious sect isn't true that as a leader, he's seen the Christians and he knows that they really don't stir up riots. And so he's like, eh, not really sure I buy it, but we'll hold on to him because again, we don't really know what to do when these Jewish things happen. 
because um, we don't want to cause riots. But we'll, we'll keep him under guard. But then he gives him freedom and permits his friends to take care of his needs, Luke among those. Several days later, Felix came along with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, listen to what he chooses, right? He's talking to Felix, who's a terrible man, an evil man. And he talks about righteousness, probably in Christ, talks about self-control and the judgment to come. It's not a surprise that the next phrase is, Felix was afraid. (laughs) Felix is like, this is a downer, man. This is not good news. And said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you, which means never. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him often. So he doesn't want to listen to him, but he's like, maybe if I keep asking him to come back, he'll pay me something. She never does. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Normally, when you're succeeded, you just kind of pardon all the cases that haven't been concluded yet, and this is two years where nothing has happened. It's like two years without a trial. You just No one can figure out what to do with him. And, and it's okay. He's in reasonably good condition. You know, he's kind of hanging out. In some ways, it's a forced rest. We talk about, you know, rest. It's like God's like, okay, you can just hang out now for two years in the guard's palace, you know, <laughs> so you don't have to worry about anything else. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. So Festus comes in, and the Jews two years later are still like, oh, now's our chance. We've got a new guy up there. Let's go get him, right? Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. Um, Where the chief, you know what, do we really think they would honor their vow, really, honestly, these people? I don't know, they probably ate where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush along the, to kill him along the way. Again, they know they can't do anything with him in trial, so they just keep trying to get him away from the guards, who are protecting him, right? He's really being protected by the guards. Um, Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there if he's done anything wrong. So Festus, by the way, is a reasonably good leader from we know from history. He was not brutal, he seemed reasonable, and he sounds reasonable here. He's like, you know, come here. If you want to press charges against him, you come here. I'm not sure I trust you guys to go there. Um, When Paul appeared, uh, after spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Even two years later, it's going to be a lot harder to prove, actually, Then Paul made his defense. I love it. This is really brief. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. That's my defense. (laughs) I shouldn't be here. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on there on these charges? Paul answered, I'm now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. If I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well, I have not done any wrong, as you know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing in that here he is, he's a Roman citizen, and they, they, it's been two years. He, I think he suspects that if he leaves here, he's going to be killed. He also knows God told him this is going to end up in Rome, and it hasn't happened yet. And so he appeals to the highest court in the land, the Supreme Court, in a sense. He says, I appeal to Caesar. And as a, as a Roman citizen... He has full right to do that whenever the charges have not been, uh, when, when the trial has not resulted in anything, you're allowed to say, come on, let's get this moving. Now, who's Caesar? It's Nero. So it's an interesting strategy. 
because Nero's not a fan of Christians. It's early in Nero's reign. There's some argument that Nero was not as hostile at this point as he becomes later. Um, After Festus had conferred with the council, he declared, you've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there's a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and has had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I'd expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their religion and about a dead man named Jesus whom Paul claimed was alive. (laughs) He's just like, I don't even understand what they're talking about. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. So I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial. And when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. He's like, I want to send him to Rome, but I don't even know what to write. I'm like, hi, I don't think this guy did anything wrong, but I sent him to you to tell you he did nothing. He's just like, I don't even have anything to say. So it seems weird to send him, but he appealed, so I don't know what to do. Um, so I brought him before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner on without specifying charges against him. They don't apparently think it's unreasonable to keep a prisoner prison uh, without charges against him, but they just don't know what to send him on. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? It's like God can do anything. Why is that so strange? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Only members of the Sanhedrin get to cast votes. This is why I think he was a member. However, very quickly, and I know we're running late, but we will finish up here pretty quick. Uh, A couple things about that. To be a member of the Sanhedrin, you have to be married. We know Paul's not married now. So that means either his wife died or she deserted him when he became a believer, which is entirely possible because he went through radical change. And he has that whole passage where he talks about if you're a believer and your unbelieving wife leaves you, let her go let her go. And so, interesting. Just an interesting point. He may have been married. He may have had that. Anyway. uh, When many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. 
On one of the journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen in me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is the fullest reckoning Paul has given of what Jesus said to him. So we already had a hint, even before Ananias, that he was going to be preaching to Gentiles. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. And that is a direct sort of pointed statement at Agrippa. I'm talking to you, small and the great. Which, by the way, was part of that vision, right? You will speak to kings. Here it is. It's happening. Um, he's king. Uh, he's not even king of this area, but he just happened to run into Festus, and so he's helping him out. They had governors and kings and pro proconsuls, and then the emperor. It's kind of. And there may have been other, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on the hierarchy, but I know those are part of the fashions. All right, uh, let's see. I'm going to keep going because I know I'm keeping you guys late. Uh, Small and great alike, I'm saying, beyond, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and the Gentiles. So again, he keeps reminding people, I'm not opposed to the law and the prophets. This is what they always said. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. You're seeing visions and hearing things. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things. So he's kind of, it's kind of like he's never done this with Festus. He's talked to him a little bit, but Festus is like, I don't even understand what they're talking about. Jesus was dead, now he's alive. But now he's talking to the, to the king, uh, Agrippa, and he's, he's, he's like, I know you understand these things more. You're familiar with our customs. So he's kind of almost dismissing Festus. He's like, no, I'm not crazy. The king understands. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. Not only that, but King Agrippa has seen all this happening. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? A reasonable alternative translation is, Paul, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. It's the short time or almost, which is the same word, and we don't know which it means. So either way, it's kind of interesting. He sounds like he's almost persuaded. And even if he's saying, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me, he's, kind of, he's still kind of a, you know, you're, 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 you're good. Um, Paul replied, short time or long? He's like, I don't care how long it takes. I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to, to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. I don't want you all to be in prison like me. The king rose and hit with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them, and they left the room. And while talking with one another, they said, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And you have to say, well, maybe he shouldn't have. But it was God's plan. God wanted him in Rome, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. 
Quick, quick statement about Agrippa. His great-grandfather tried to kill Jesus as a baby, Herod. His grandfather was, uh, beheaded John the Baptist, the next Herod. His father killed James the Apostle, the next Herod. And here's Paul standing in front of this wonderful heritage. <laughs> and, and almost leading him to Christ, but not quite. So he's appealed to Nero, and he's shared the gospel with Agrippa. Interesting state of affairs here. All right, two more chapters. We'll read them fast. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Notice Luke is going with him. Luke is still sticking with him, right? It's just, and again, Luke may be his lawyer in some ways. That's the other thing as we read this, that he may kind of be representing him. Although Paul always talks for himself just fine. Um, the next day we landed at Sidon. So here we go. Oh, I already was in Sidon. Sorry. Uh, let's see. And Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. Again, they're treating him pretty well. It's like, go. And by the way, a lot of these places Paul could probably escape. And he doesn't. Because he knows now the plan is to go to Rome. So he's like, go, go, go talk with your friends in Sidon. So he's like, okay, what's that? I know. From there, we put out to sea again and passed the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. So they go around, see how they go around the other side of Cyprus there is what he means. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty getting off Snidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete. Here we go. So they're kind of heading around to that side. Opposite Salmon, we moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lasea. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. He's talking about Yom Kippur, but all he means is it's getting close to winter. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. So Paul warned them. And I don't think this is prophetic. I think this is just Paul. Remember, Paul's done a lot of sailing. Really, for 20 years, he's been sailing across this same area. I think this is just sort of common sense and sailor knowledge. He says, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. There was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. He's like, I think if we keep going, we're going to be in trouble. They're like, nah, we'll make it. We'll press on to the next harbor. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. Now look how far off course they are. <laughs> They're trying to get up to, uh, to Italy up there, and they, they just can't get up there. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. No, Phoenix is right here. They were supposed to only go right there. It's still on Crete. They weren't supposed to go very far. But they, they couldn't. They got blown completely out into the middle of the, the uh, ocean there, the sea. Um, it says, since the harbor, let's see, uh, the ship was caught by the storm and cannot head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. So they know if they head into the wind, they'll be torn apart. So they're just like, okay, we just got to go where the wind blows us. As we passed the lee of a small island called Kauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. They have to bring the lifeboat in onto the ship because it normally kind of is attached and towed along. And at this point, it would just be ripped away from them. So they're just barely able to get it on board. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. They basically tie the ship together so that it doesn't fall apart. 
Um, fearing that they would run aground on the sandbar of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. They're like, we just got to let the wind take us. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. Do you think they throw the cargo overboard easily? No, that's like a last resort. That's the whole point of this ship is to get money. They're losing everything by throwing the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. Now they're throwing the ship's supplies overboard. They're really desperate. They're just doing anything they can to lighten the load on the ship so they don't sink. With their own hands, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. And Luke is part of that we. He's like, we're done for. (laughs) After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, (laughs) I love his starting line. He couldn't resist himself. I told you so, he says. You should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage. And this is prophetic. Because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Again, I love to think of this moment when Paul is, he's thinking they're lost too. He's part of that we. Wow, we're lost. And God's like, wait a minute. I told you we were going to Rome. You're going to get to Rome. And then Paul's like, but what about all the rest of these poor guys? God's like, okay, I'll save them too. You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of like that's what's happening here. Um, so keep your courage, man, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Again, this is good news, bad news. You're all going to live, but your ship is a goner. You know. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found the water was 120 feet deep. Short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. So the sailors are going to run and leave all the prisoners. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless those men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. And I don't know how he knows this, but I guess his understanding is we have to do this together or I may be the only one to live. (laughs) So you want to live? Don't let them do this. Um, So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Which again, they've now given up everything. Lifeboat, tackle, cargo. They're just, they're trusting Paul, honestly, is what they're doing because they got nothing else. Um, Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything, which makes me think he's been eating just fine, which is kind of funny. (laughs) Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread. He gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. He makes this kind of a, a, a service right here in front of them. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. So now they're done eating. They're like, well, we're either going to get out of this soon or not. So they got rid of all the rest of the food. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground, which Paul said would happen. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. Paul also said they would lose the ship. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, because if the prisoners get away, the soldiers get executed. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life, so he kept them from carrying out the plan. Centurion's like, well, if we kill the prisoners, we have to kill Paul, but kind of like Paul, he's kind of been good to us. Uh, He got us to eat when we wouldn't eat, Uh, so 
we're going to keep them all safe. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land, which means they could have escaped. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship, and in this way, everyone reached the land in safety. Can you imagine? 276 people all got to land safely. That is a miracle. It's pretty fabulous. Um, and they're on Malta. Once safely on shore, we found out the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. It's not, it's not Gilligan's Island. There are people here. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, man, what an image, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. Paul is so casual about this. He's like, and it falls in, he's like, hey. The people expected him to swell up or fall suddenly dead, but after waiting a long time, you can just see them all watching him, and seeing nothing, seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. This, this does not reflect the fickleness of people. He's a murderer. He's a god. Is there nothing in between? You know, it's just like, okay, whatever. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed. By the way, I think this we now is just Luke and Paul and his companions. I don't think all 276. I think it's just this group got kind of, again, God is providing for them in a special way. Um, he welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. And when this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. This is fascinating. It says Paul healed, but the word cured is not healed, which is why it's translated differently. It's given medical treatment. What is Luke? He's a doctor. So it's kind of fascinating. It's like Paul heals supernaturally, the, the father, and they all hear about this, and so they all come wanting supernatural healing, and Luke does just what he does. He just goes about same old medical stuff. I, it's just, I don't know what it means exactly, but it's kind of fascinating that God didn't work the same way through everybody, and that Luke does what he does, and, and that still is good. People are like, oh, we have a doctor. That's awesome, because I don't know if there was one, or you know, who knows. It's just kind of fascinating that God doesn't do exactly the same thing in every scenario. Um. They honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship. Now, again, could Paul have escaped at any point in here? I bet he could have. I mean, you know, they're in disarray at this moment, but he doesn't. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island, and this is now back to probably most of them, at least the, the other prisoners and captain and all that. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. I'll admit I have no idea why Luke gives us that detail. There may be a reason may just be detail. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. Uh, Syracuse, let's go to Syracuse. Oh, there's a picture of Malta. Oh, by the way, St. Paul's Bay, that's actually what it's called. On Malta, they now, there's, a, there's a bay they call St. Paul's Bay after this story. Um, Syracuse, so they go to Syracuse in Sicily. Um, here's a very quick story. Archimedes lived in Syracuse. There's a, this has nothing to do with anything, but it's an interesting story. There's a story that says that Archimedes was, when the Romans first came and conquered uh, Syracuse, Archimedes was on the ground working an equation out with a stick in the dirt, and a Roman soldier came up behind him and held a knife to his neck, and, and uh, Archimedes said, stop, you're messing up my equation, and so the soldier killed him. Anyway, that's the story, um, isn't it? So then, <laughs> a little bit of history. <laughs> Anyway, so he goes to Syracuse uh, and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Butoli. 
It's up there. So here they are in Italy. There we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there had heard that we were coming. Now, please remember, these are the brothers he just wrote a letter to. Right? This is the church that we just read that long letter. So we kind of know. We almost know them a little bit. We know what their struggles were and what was going on. And they know Paul. Even though he's never been here before, they've had this letter from him and they, under, they know him. And they act like they know him in a lot of ways. The brothers there had heard that, he, that we were coming and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns or the three inns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. That's kind of awesome. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I'm bound with this chain. He just wants to make sure they're okay. He calls the Jewish leaders. He's like, I just want you to know what really happened. I'm not a bad guy. And they replied, we haven't heard anything, essentially. We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come there has reported or said anything bad about you. It's like they gave up finally. You know, they just, now he's gone to Caesar. They're like, whatever. He's gone. They finally stopped sort of pursuing him. Um, but well, we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people are everywhere talking against the sect. We have heard bad things about the way, which they call... It's interesting. Paul calls it the way. They call it the sect. It's like, you know, one of those things. You're pro or con. No, these are the Jewish leaders he's talking to, not of the church, of, of, of the Jews. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. And from morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. So they, they listen, they hear, some believe, some don't. So here he is preaching to the Jews in Rome, but then some of them don't. And in response to some of them not believing, he says this, the Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. It's kind of harsh. It's kind of like you're not paying attention. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. <laughs> it's like, wow, thanks, Paul. He gave up trying to win him over at that moment, I think. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where it ends. So his case comes up after two years, but we don't know what happens. Why? Because that's the moment at which Luke wrote this or completed this because he's presenting this likely to the court. He's saying, so this is it. And the point is, Paul didn't do anything wrong. Paul was innocent. The way didn't do anything wrong. You know, that's the point. When you look at the book of Acts, there's all this indication that what Luke is saying is, well, look, we were led by God and nobody was trying to stir up anything against the Roman government and Paul was innocent and this is my brief. It's interesting to call it a brief because it's 28 chapters long, but, you know, makes sense. Um, so that's kind of where he is. We'll, I know it's late, so we'll let you guys go. Thank you so much for bearing with me. I just didn't want to stop in the middle of that. Um, one, it, I will just mention that we do know I'll tell you this without telling you what happens at the end of two years. You'll just have to stay tuned for that. We do know that in the two years he's here under house arrest, he writes the books of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. 
So that's what we'll be reading. When we get done with those books, then we'll find out what happens to him after those two years. One of the interesting points is Philemon is about a slave that has come to visit him. So when it says he welcomed all who came, one of the ones who came to him was a guy named Onesimus, who was a runaway slave, who shows up at Paul's house, his, his prison house. And that's kind of fascinating in and of itself as a story. The slave runs away and decides of all places to go to a, a, a prison. Um, and meets Paul there to kind of talk to Paul and to tell Paul, I'm a believer, but I'm also a slave and I don't know what to do. And then we read in Philemon what Paul's advice is, both to Onesimus and to Philemon, who is Onesimus's owner, whom Onesimus has run away from. That's a fascinating story. Um, so that's kind of what happens in those two years. Like I say, he writes uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And you can see in those books as he writes them, he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. Every day he's like, tomorrow I may go to trial, they may execute me. I don't know. He's pretty upbeat about it, <laughs> but you can see, particularly in Philippians, he keeps saying things like, eh, this might be the last letter I ever write. You know, <laughs> wow. <laughs> he just really doesn't know what's going to happen. And so that's, that's where we are, and that's the end of the book of Acts.